0: Ulysses S. Grant called the Confederate line on Missionary Ridge impregnable. It could not be taken over. In late November of 1863, the Union Army was delayed near Chattanooga, Tennessee, right near Lookout Mountain. General Sherman had been slowed, and Grant, being the one that, even in an impregnable situation, even in forces that he thought couldn't be taken over. He did it anyway, and he sent new regiments forward up Missionary Ridge. Two of the regiments were the 15th and 24th regiments from Wisconsin. They met very heavy fire, and as reported, as they were slowed going up Missionary Ridge, an 18-year-old, an A. MacArthur of the 24th of Wisconsin, took up the Wisconsin flag, charged up Missionary Ridge, screaming out, on Wisconsin. And on the 25th of November, the Union Army took Missionary Ridge and the Confederate Army retreated to Georgia. MacArthur received the Medal of Honor. And in 1909, this story was made into song, the on Wisconsin fight song that became a song for the University of Wisconsin. What does it take to defeat a stronghold? A brash 18-year-old crying on Wisconsin, charging up a hill with a flag? Strongholds seem impregnable, especially the ones in our own lives, sometimes, or in our culture. Strongholds of bitterness, or division, addiction. What does it take to confront these strongholds? What does it take for them to defeat it in our culture and in our own life? Today, we're going to see Paul take up the flag of the gospel and take on the strongholds warring Against the church. And if you're gonna get any point from today, it's this. I hope. Today we're gonna to see the way the church confronts is suspect to the world, but it's the strategy needed to topple the greatest problems of our age. Today we're gonna to see that the way the church confronts is suspect to the world, but it's truly the strategy needed to topple the greatest problems of our age. Let's look together at God's word, shall we? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Please pay attention as we look at God's word together. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The Word of the Lord. We're just joining us. We've been going through this letter, this epistle of Second Corinthians. And I do wonder if some of us think that, does the Bible actually talk to the complexities of? Of human relationships. Of the confrontations and conflicts that happen in organizations or between people. The he says, she says confrontations. Arguments, gossips, rising tensions, office divisions, office politics, church splits, hurt feelings. Does the Bible even know about these things? Does it even speak to these things? What we've seen is this book, this letter, is talking about a very complicated confrontation that's going on in the church that Paul started a few years earlier. You see, Paul has already written this church multiple times about their idolatry, their spiritual self-righteousness, their sexual misconduct. He's had a painful visit with them. He's had a severe letter. Now he's written this letter. Now if you think about complicated situations, maybe you've been part of mediation sessions. You've been part of letters back and forth. You've been part of confrontations where people talk past each other. These are the kind of confrontations we see even here between Paul and And what's going on in this church. The Bible is not foreign to these things. And the confrontations that we face in our world. Now we've seen this. The first nine chapters of this book. It's been great progress. We see that the church in Corinth has repented. For not dealing with a certain individual. That they have not taken out of the church. Because of their sexual misconduct. That person has been confronted, they've repented. Now Paul has told them to love this individual, bring them into the church. Paul is confident in the work that's going on in the church in Corinth. And the first nine chapters are really just an encouragement for them to continue to live in the repentance that they've been in, and also in being new creations in Christ. But in the last four chapters of this book, there seems to be a turn. And that's where we're entering in right here with chapter 10. He's turned his focus from those that have been repentant in the church in Corinth to those that are unrepentant. Maybe they're inside the church. Maybe they're influencing the people inside the church. And they're outside the church. And you see the tone of Paul has changed. He uses a lot more satire in these last four chapters. Sarcasm, spirited defense, And just outright attacks against the outsiders that are infiltrating the church. I love Sinclair Ferguson in the way he tries to understand as we read 2 Corinthians. It's like hearing someone talking on the phone. And you don't know maybe what the other person, you don't know what the other person is saying on the other line. or Maybe you don't even know who they're talking to and you're trying to figure out what is going on or who they're talking to or what the other person is saying. All you hear is one side. That's us entering into this letter. We're just hearing from Paul, from his side, what's happening, but we get pieces through the letter of what the other side is saying. We get hints The same way we get hints about what the other side is saying with the phone conversation, what they're saying. And we get these hints right here in verse 1. And I think Paul is quoting exactly what people are saying about him. It says this, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. See, the detractors... Those that were going against Paul said this was his problem. You see, when he's with them in person, maybe the painful visit, he's just this humble dude. But then when he writes letters, he's bold in what he says. I have a feeling the detractors are not happy about with Paul because his letter that he wrote actually caused an effect that they did not want to happen in the church. And now they're trying to undermine his message by making their observations of what they see and trying to ruin his credibility. I think we see the major differences between the way that Paul sees things and these super apostles, as he calls them sarcastically, sees things, is in one way they view this word flesh. Look at me again in verse 1. Uh, Verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I might have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Now you see, the flesh was interpreted as something worldly, something not spiritual, something against the Lord. And for the super apostles, what they said is Paul was walking in the flesh, See, for the super apostles to be spiritual, to be walking with God, was to be of eloquent speech, to have grand visions, to show exorbitant displays of authority, to receive money for their speaking gigs. That's what the super apostles saw as strength. And for them, they saw this man, Paul. And in church history, they said he had small stature. That some would say he was bald. Or his legs was crooked, as the, the uh, Acts of Paul says, written in the second century. I don't know if that's true or not. But he was not someone to be like, wow, that guy's hit the gym. That was not Paul. And then, of course, he doesn't have these lavish flourishes when he's with them in person. Or takes their money for the speeches that he gives. Instead, Paul's one that we see throughout this book is persecuted. He's mocked. Poverty, physical ailments. See, for them, these super apostles, that was walking in the flesh. But for Paul, that is not. See, Paul says, Yeah, yeah, I do. Walk in the flesh in this sense, for though we walk in the flesh, meaning we have a body, a body that is deteriorating, a vessel that is feeble, as remember we saw earlier in the book, we are bodies in jars of clay that have a treasure inside. See, Paul's been saying his power is not in his physical ability. His power is in the treasure inside. It is in Christ. And for them, these people, the observations they they are making, this is weird. It's weird that this guy in this feeble body talks such a bold game. He talks about judgment and heavenly dwelling Triumph in Christ, having unveiled faces, representing the glory of God, talking about the law's inability to do what it should do, talking about giving radically. And he does this in this meek way, not in this big game. How can these things come together? When Morgan and I, my daughter, get on the track, I'm a super apostle. I I mean, I'm five foot nine, so I'm towering over my five foot one daughter, right? And you know, I've got the game. You know, and I talk a big game about how I'm gonna run fast, this 400 rep we're gonna do, right? And Morgan, she's quiet, she's chill, and then when we get to the two hundred meter mark on our four hundreds, trying to get the eighty, you know, seventy to eighty seconds, she takes off, and I can't, I can't keep up. And she beats me; she leaves me in the dust. How can this five foot one, gentle, meek girl, do such bold things? Because there's speed in her. That's the kind of confusion that's happening with these people. How is this possible? What is going on? I think it makes sense that this is kind of a group that's perplexed about Paul because Paul associates himself with Christ. You see this. very beginning of this section, these chapters, he says this, and he's entreating himself to begin to want, talking about himself, then entreating them, pleading to them. I, Paul, myself, entreat you, plead to you by what? The meekness and gentleness of Christ. He associates himself with Jesus. A Jesus that at one moment says, children, Come to me. And then at another moment says, Woe to the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the judgment of hell? A Jesus who in one moment allows a crippled man to be lowered down and heal him. And at the same moment says to that man, Your sins are forgiven. A Jesus who in weakness, or we'll say meekness and gentleness, what people would see as weak, wears a crown of thorns and goes to the cross. But at the same time says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And the only way to the Father is through me. How can a man of suffering say such bold things? See, in a world that lives by a different currency, that thinks there's other ways that really produces change, the gospel just doesn't seem to make sense. See, the gospel comes to us and comes to our culture, and it can seem very confusing. At one moment... It comes, it says, gentle and loving and pleading. I will come to you, my sheep, and i welcome you in my arms. But at the same time, the gospel is bold and it says, follow me. Take up your cross. It makes sense that many of us or maybe friends that we know or people in the culture, they respond to this message of humility And this message of boldness with confusion. How do I want to respond to the meek message of the gospel that says, follow one that was rejected and despised. Follow one that had no place to lay his head. Follow one that went to the cross. Why would we want to follow someone like that? And that's one objection to following the gospel. Then on the other side, people reject the gospel. Maybe you reject the gospel because of its bold message that says Christ is the king and we need to submit all of our life to him. It's amazing how we can ping pong from both objections, right? One said, I don't want to live a life where I have to be humble and meek and live gentleness and patience and kindness. Then on the other side, we paint to this side. I don't want to have to follow one that says he is the king and I must follow him and he is the ruler over my life. It makes sense. That those that are objecting to Paul in the gospel message are confused. That he is both humble, but he also talks boldly. What if, what if this gentle king has the actual power to destroy strongholds? What if it's actually this manifestation? What if it's actually this incarnation? What if it's actually this character? What is actually this gospel message that is actually the power to destroy the strongholds and the things that might be destroying our world? I don't know if you know this, but the 20th century has been quite the experiment. It was the experiment of what you could do to solve the problems of nations. Many of you have studied history of the 20th century, some of you were. Much of your life was in the 20th century. From communist ideology to fascist ideology, from bombastic leaders that said, I have the power to solve problems. And we saw wars and conflicts and millions dead, saying this is the way to solve the problems of our world. And we haven't been immune from it in the United States, from the New Deal, to great society, to housing projects, to the welfare state, to social engineering. We have lived through that in the 20th century And these solutions have also failed. And here comes the church. And it enters, hopefully with humility and service and washing of feet. But then we boldly say, the only thing that will transform is the gospel. And what does the world say? How dare you be so narrow? I was finding intriguing, there was an article that was written just, I think, this last week about people very angry at the church that they've used the opportunity in Ukraine to go over to Ukraine and sing hymns and stand at subway stations and hand out tracts and talk about the gospel. How dare we allow them an opening to talk about such things when there's such conflict going on? I understand why they're confused. Because they don't realize what the true power is to take down strongholds. It's the power of the gospel. Christian, I hope that you both show humility and boldness in your life. See, humility with no boldness fails to tell people about the true transformational power of the gospel. But boldness with no gentleness shows that you have no union with the one who laid down his life for others. They are both together. Meekness with boldness. Well, it goes on here and you can see that the sharper edges start to come in. But you see that Paul always continues to keep his critics at bay and he wants to speak to the church in Corinth and those are repentant and allow them to hear what the strategies are and what's at stake and how these impregnable forces and things can be torn down. The words he uses in verses 3-6 through six is a great kind of word picture and I am picturing and many picture that Paul is seeing Acrocorinth when he's using these words. If you've ever been to southern Greece, the Acrocorinth is these basically this fortress, these walls that are up on this major hillside in southern Greece. And if you were someone trying to attack southern Greece and come against Corinth, to be able to get past these fortifications would have been very daunting. In fact, the Stoics and the Cynics, the philosophers of that age, actually used the same imagery of the Acrocorinth. They said these fortifications, these impregnable forces that are there, this is what it's like for our soul to be attached, uh, Attacked that we have as Stoics and Cynics these fortifications that cannot be taken down because it is like this Acro-Corinth. So that is what Paul is picturing. How would you then break through the philosophies of Corinth, of the Stoics, of the Cynics, How would you break through to the super apostles? How would you be able to reach the culture at this time? And this is what Paul uses as his imagery. The power to take down these fortifications. And so the imagery he uses here in verses 3 through 6 is warfare. Something lofty, meaning something raised up thinking about these walls. He talks about captives, thinking about those behind the walls, the fortifications. And then when the walls are taken down, the judgment that you're able to do, the seizure of the fortress and those are that are behind it at the end. Paul is using war metaphor in taking out a fortress it's very interesting that he juxtaposes that with the meekness of Christ. He talks about the meekness of Christ in the beginning in the more imagery taking them together, boldness and meekness, that it is not weird. But what Paul is saying is the power to do these things are from the gospel. They are divine powers. They are from Christ to be able to take down these things, to take them captive. That is the answer to these problems. It is the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus that can break through strongholds. Some of you have heard the story of Rosaria Butterfield the professor at Syracuse of Women's Studies, who in the late 90s said, I was very happy with my life. I had a golden retriever, I had my female partner, I attended a Unitarian church, and I had a tenured position at Syracuse University in Women's Studies. In the late 90s, she wrote an article cutting against promise keepers and the religious right. And she said she got a lot of letters in response to her article and she put them into the love and hate box, she says. One that loved it, those that hated it. But there's one that stood out, she said. "Is from a pastor, a local pastor at a Syracuse Reformed church and this pastor just asked her questions. How do you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know that you are right? Do you believe in God? Well, she threw the letter out. But then her conscience or something got a hold of her, and she went back to the trash and fished it out and contacted this pastor. What formed was a two years of friendship, many meals and questions, and reading the Bible. Something was starting to change in her. She was in her kitchen, and a transgender friend of hers came to her and said, What is going on with you? You don't believe this stuff, do you? And her transgender friend said, I was a pastor for 15 years. And it did no good. Finally, I came to who I wanted to be. And Rosaire Butterfield looked at her friend and said, What if this stuff is actually true? You see the boldness came. And she said this, if Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? A pastor that was meek That prayed, that used the weapons of the gospel. That is the power that broke through into this woman's life and changed her and radically transformed her. As evangelicals, we love stories like this, right? We've won. The battle our side has won. I love verse 6 here. Being ready to punish every disobedience. Is your obedience complete? Is a gentle yet bold God coming after you and your strongholds? your stubbornness your addiction to pleasure your bitterness your anger that person that you cannot forgive there is a battle a battle for those strongholds to come down in your life that are obedience would be complete. Now hear me, it will finally only be complete in glory. But I hope there's a struggle going on. I think about it. In our current age, that can feel many times like it is Acro-Corinth, that we are looking up at our culture, looking it up at things that are going on in our world. It's like we're on Missionary Ridge and they are firing down upon us. What are we to do? How are we supposed to take ground and defeat these strongholds? I read an article this week in a very intellectual journal by this very renowned theologian. I'm not going to give his name, but he's not in our camp, I would say, but he's actually realizing the contempt for Christianity has grown, that even in his own camp, he wonders, what are we to do? And this is what he says in the article. Too many people who claim to be Christian simply don't know Jesus. They may keep their religion for its comfort, but it doesn't reshape their lives because it isn't real. And because it isn't real, it has no transforming effect on their behavior. No social force. If we do not know and love Jesus Christ and commit our lives to him and act on what he claims to believe, everything else is empty. Do we really believe in Jesus Christ or don't we? See, this is the work that sets fire to the human heart. It starts the only kind of revolution that really changes anything. A revolution of love. Jesus said, I came to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled. This is both the meekness of Christ and the boldness of Christ together. The way the church confronts is suspect to the world. But it is the strategy needed to topple the greatest problems of our age. Who will take up the message of the gospel? Who will carry its banner? Who will charge up what seems to be impregnable forces of our culture? And do it with meekness and boldness and say, onward! Christian, let us go forward with humility but with the divine power of Christ.